better than what I have to say. Oh my goodness. Good morning again. Uh, we are in our third week in the study of the question, is the gospel social justice? Uh, and two weeks ago, we considered uh, the foundation of evangelism and relief. Last week, we talked about development. This week, we're going to look at, uh, at social reform. Before I jump into the, to the uh, study this morning, uh, Friday afternoon at about 5 o'clock, uh, the contractor looked at me and said, we have substantial completion. Here are the keys to the new building. So you can... You, you can put an in ink on your calendar. October the 4th will be the first Sunday uh, that we will be in the building. Now, if there's a tornado or something, you can't hold me to that. But all things being equal, it looks like we're a go there. And I said to you guys, in this, I made a mistake last Sunday because I forgot what week it was. So that's how in tune I am with everything. Um, that we would be handing you a card this week with the Save the Dates because there are several dates around that with open houses and those sorts of things, and I was thinking that it was already August the 23rd. So we'll actually put that in your hands next Sunday. So you will have uh, a little card that you can put on the, the uh, refrigerator. It'll also be on the website because there are several dates besides just that Sunday that are going to be important to us. But praise God for that. We, uh, we are, we're going to have a home, and that's pretty neat. Um, thinking about this sermon, and I was thinking about one of the earliest sentences that ever came out of my mouth. And I'm guessing that for a lot of us, it, it's some variation of this sentence is one of the first times we learn to put several words together. Uh, and the first sentence that, that I really kind of remember saying was, that's not fair. <laughs> Do you remember saying that as a child? What was interesting in my life, which probably isn't true in your life, but what was interesting in my life is when I said that, I was actually, what I was saying was, that's not fair for me. Like, I wasn't an advocate for other children's rights in my home. I had an older brother and older sister. Uh, I was never arguing on their behalf. I was never fighting for them. I was always fighting for my space and for my ground. We are incredibly concerned about justice when we think we've been wrong. Are we concerned about justice all the time? Are we concerned about justice for other people? Are we concerned about justice in our culture at a macro level, not just a micro level? That's really the question we want to wrestle with this morning in God's Word, uh, because the notion of biblical social justice, not how man defines social justice, I, I say this every week, uh, but how God defines social justice, the biblical perspective, must include the question of justice at the macro level. But if it's going to include that, if we're going to be asking questions about our community and justice within our community or justice within our state or justice within our nation or justice within our world, we have to look at our own hearts. That's where it always begins. We're going to look at three passages of Scripture this morning. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles or on your iPads, but we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. Uh, but we're going to read all three of them at the beginning. The first two are very short. The third one's a little bit longer. Uh, we're going to start in Job. And then we're going to go to the prophet Daniel, and then we're going to end up in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hear the word of God. Job says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. 
In Daniel chapter 4, the prophet is speaking to the greatest king on the planet at that particular moment, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And he concludes his conversation with the king by saying this, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, and that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Then the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 32 through the end of the chapter, speaking about our forebears in the faith, our spiritual parents who came before us, and the uh, attitude and the tone of their lives. And what more shall I say? For time does not, or time fails me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, and mountains, and in dens, and in caves in the earth. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, the term social justice is thrown around in our culture and means hundreds of different things. But Father, we don't come here this morning to hear the opinions of man to hear what a a preacher might think about a certain topic, that's of no consequence. Uh, My words are no different than anyone else. I'm fallible. I'm limited in the scope of my understanding, my experience in life. Father, we come here to hear the Word of God. Lord, if you don't teach us, this is a tremendous waste of time. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit and your Word would penetrate our hearts and our minds this morning. We pray that we would be students of your holy and your perfect Word. Lord, every one of us comes from from a different type of background, and there are also many similarities among us, the most common of which is each one of us needs a Savior. Whether we realize it or not, we have offended you. You are holy and you are a righteous God. There's no imperfection within you. You do not tolerate sin. And yet you have provided a way out for us. You've provided salvation through the Lord Jesus. So Lord, today I pray it would be a day of salvation in our lives. For those of us perhaps that have known you for many years, for those of us who have just met you, or those of us that may meet you this morning, Lord, we pray that your spirit would bring life into our lives. Father, this is a challenging conversation. This is a difficult topic. Uh, It's one that's easy to talk about and to uh, philosophize over and to, to, uh, to wax eloquent. It's quite another thing to actually put it into practice in our lives. And again, Lord, that is why we need you. Father, forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me keep anyone from hearing your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you the uh, sermon in a sentence. It's been the same for the last three weeks. 
uh, but we will uh, touch on the very end of it this morning. Biblical social justice is the practical application of God's grace shared freely with everyone through four aspects, through evangelism, relief, development, and what we're going to talk about this morning, social reform. Let me give you a very brief review and also remind you that the sermons are uh, on our website. You can listen to them via podcast. If you've missed the last two Sundays or one of the last two Sundays, let me encourage you to to kind of get the complete package. This started out as one sermon, and it just kind of took on a life of its own, and, and, uh, and the Lord made it work out this way, and I trust Him in that. But uh, it'd be tough to listen to this sermon and fully grasp where we're going without the foundation of the other two. But just by quick review, biblical social justice is founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is our highest calling. We do not uh, go straight to the human need of relief of suffering while ignoring the spiritual need, the eternal need of a person's soul. So foundationally, we begin with and always seek to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us. I said last, last week I had five minutes left in my life and I knew that you needed help. The most important thing I would do is tell you about Jesus. My, my concern wouldn't be so much your physical well-being as it would be your eternal spiritual well-being. So evangelism is always part of the equation for the disciple of Jesus. But it certainly does not stop there. And the other three spokes to the wheel, so to speak, uh, reinforce the authenticity of the first. You can't love a person's soul and not care about their physical well-being. That's antithetical. And so secondly, biblical social justice is relief, providing for the fundamental care of those who cannot do for themselves. We mentioned some of the names that we find in Scripture of people that would fall into this category, widows and orphans, those who are needy, the, the alien, the stranger, uh, the ones who are helpless. And so there needs to be in every uh, disciple's life an understanding that God may use you from time to time or may use me uh, on a regular basis, may use us every day of our lives, but we need to be prepared to care for the needy. And then thirdly, biblical social justice must also include development, which is creating pathways out of poverty for those with fewer resources. The Church of Jesus Christ should always be concerned with helping people who have the ability to find their way out of poverty, but they have a limited set of resources. And our responsibility should always include, and our opportunity should always include, uh, caring for the development of others. But for today, it's really the bigger question of injustice that we're going to tackle when we talk about social reform. Gary Haugen is the founder of International Justice Mission, and I like his quote uh, on the definition of social injustice. Injustice is the abuse of power. Oppressors use whatever power or authority they have to take from those who are weak. To do so, the oppressor isolates the weaker individual from the protection of the law or from those who might be able to bring power to bear on the victim's behalf. I'll tell you a little more about that author later on in the sermon, but I think his definition is exactly right. I believe that what he claims there is an accurate understanding, fundamentally, of the notion of injustice. But I don't think that, that uh, he is coming up with this on his own. He's not, he's not looking at this in a vacuum. Rather, I think he's following Scripture very carefully. I'll give you a couple of verses that 
we didn't read this morning, but would be good cross-references for this topic. In Psalm 35, the psalmist said, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and the needy from him who robs him? In other words, the psalmist says, God, you are keenly concerned with injustice and making sure that those who, who are uh, at the whim of the power of others are treated fairly. Amos says this as a prophet speaks for God, talking about the sins of the nation of Israel. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Uh, the gate would be the local courthouse. In ancient Israel, the gate is where the elders sat. And they, they literally held court so that if you and I had a disagreement, we would go to the gate and we would sit down in front of the elders and I would present my part of my case and you would present your part of your case. And then the elders would render a verdict. Uh, if you go to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, you'll find that when Boaz wants to marry Ruth, he knows that he has to go before the elders with his proposition because there's another person who has a legal right to propose marriage to Ruth should he so choose. And so he went to the gate for justice. So when, the, when Amos says this, he's saying that those of you who should be judging fairly, those of you that should not take a bribe, that should, should not be a respecter of persons, so to speak, but should rather be blind and simply give justice as it should be done, you are ignoring that. So God's leading when we talk about this topic is way out ahead of our thinking. Our goal as disciples is to get closer to a practical application of the Word of God, and it certainly is true when it comes to the question of injustice. So how do we go about that? What is our part? And that's where I want to turn to these three different passages this morning, give you three observations. This certainly is not an inclusive list. Uh, there are certainly dozens of other things that could be added to this. My intention over these last three weeks is to get us thinking along these lines, not to answer every question there is about biblical social justice, but rather to get us thinking in a certain direction. So the first word I want to put in front of you this morning is confrontation. How many people in this room love confrontation? Oh, come on. I can't be the only person that really loves a little bit of conflict in my life. Okay, thank you, Jamie. I appreciate there's at least one other person that likes a little conflict. You can't play hockey and not like a little bit of conflict. So, uh, But most of us, you know, run away. We, we don't like that. We want everything to be quiet and smooth and, and, and nobody yelling at anybody. Let, let's all just kind of go along and get along. But if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, at one moment or another, you're going to have to embrace confrontation. Confrontation is not bullying. Confrontation doesn't come from arrogance. It doesn't come from I know better than everybody else attitude, but rather it comes from viewing the world through the lens of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And when something's wrong, standing up and saying so. So Job says this in his passage. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him I did not know. So there's the notion of relief and the notion of development, according to Scripture. But then he says this, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous, and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. What exactly does that mean, breaking the fangs and making them drop their prey? Well, what Job is saying there is when, when a, an injustice came to my attention, I used my power, I used the, the, the resources at my disposal, I, I used all that God had given me 
for the cause of the person that was being treated unjustly. And Job was a very wealthy man. Job was a man of significant power in his culture. And when Job set out to accomplish something, he more often than not got it done. And yet here's a heart of a man who has all the resources in the world at his feet, and he says, now how should I use these resources? One of the ways I'm going to use my resources is I'm going to look out for people that don't have what I have. People that don't have access to, you know, they didn't have a Supreme Court back in those days, but if there was, Job had buddies on the Supreme Court. He could go and talk to those kind of powerful people and say, this is wrong, and we're not going to tolerate it in our community. This isn't going to stand in our neighborhood. This isn't going to be part of the identity of our city. And I'm going to use all of my power to bear to make sure that we confront that which is wrong. I think one of the applications we can take away from from this comment by Job is just simply asking the question, are, are we aware and engaged? Do we know people who are easy victims of others? Or are most of the relationships in my life people of the same socioeconomic standing as me and, and my life has gotten so busy and I've gotten so insulated to the, to the cause of injustice that I really don't even necessarily know anybody who might be in that particular set of circumstances. That's not representative of the community of Kirkwood. The Kirkwood community is made up of people uh, who live well below the poverty line. Are any of those folks my friends? Or any of those people that I engage in life with on a regular basis, would I even know if they had been victimized? If I'm aware and I'm engaged, then I will be active in relief. I'll be active in development, but my eyes will also be open to injustice. Uh, Brad List came to me one day about three years ago. Brad List was our staff member here. He worked in our youth ministry. And he came to me and said, I've got a, I've got a problem. I said, what's your problem? And Brad coached um, freshman high school. He helped coach uh, freshman basketball at Kirkwood High School. And he said, one of the kids that I've known for the last three years, he's a, he's a senior this year, um, he's gotten a scholarship offer to a local university. And he's about to sign the scholarship offer, but I've read the paperwork. Now, think about this. If you're a high school student, uh, you're not going to read the small print most of the time anyway, right? Maybe you were the exception when you were 18 years old. Uh, I know I certainly wasn't reading the small print and wasn't worried about the details. And if you think about a young man who's living well below the poverty line, having the, the, having the training and the wisdom and the understanding to read the fine print probably isn't there. And Brad said, I read this, you know, this, this, uh, this uh, scholarship contract. And, the, and this kid's so excited about getting the scholarship, he's going to run track at a, local, at a local university. His family could come and watch him. He's so excited about this scholarship. But the problem is, here's how much it costs to go to the school per year for this kid. And the scholarship is 50% of it. And he has to sign for these student loans in order to accept the scholarship. Now, I'm going to put it really bluntly, okay, friends? And this might offend you, but what that athletic director was doing was pimping that kid out. He was using him for his own welfare. He might not have done that knowingly. He might be the most wonderful person in the world. I've, I've never met the athletic director there. But what he was doing was fundamentally wrong. He was burying that kid financially for the cause of his track team. And Brad had the guts to stand up and say so. And Brad went to the athletic director, and he went respectfully, and he went with humility, and he said, here's how I'm reading this. Am I understanding this correctly? And the, and, and the AD said, he absolutely is. And Brad said, i, I got to tell him not to sign this. I, I cannot let him do this. If he does it, he at least has to have somebody who warns him of what this actually means. Brad didn't have any fun doing that. He didn't enjoy it. It took a lot for him to screw up his courage to, to get there. 
but he was willing to speak up. He was willing to, to be offended on behalf of somebody else, to take issue with something that wasn't right and demand equality. He was fighting for his neighbor. He was willing to confront. I know we don't like confrontation. As I said, confrontation is not bullying. It doesn't come from arrogance. But we must be willing to say, wait a minute, this, something's not right here. And, and I could maybe help someone who, who doesn't have the training or the knowledge to understand this. I can actually love my neighbor in a way that, that I could confront something that's going to happen to them that's going to be wrong. I think that's part of the responsibility of disciples of Jesus. Look at all the places where Jesus confronted unrighteousness and injustice in his day and age. What was Jesus doing when he hung on the cross? He was confronting the problem of sin that you have in your life and the problem of sin that I have in my life. He was, he was confronting the fact that we were the objects of God's just wrath, and so he took our place so that we could be redeemed. Jesus understands confrontation, and he calls us to walk through this life with our eyes open, to be willing to speak up and to take issue and demand equality and to fight for our neighbor. Confrontation is the first word. The second word I want to share with you this morning out of God's word comes from the book of Daniel, and that's the word influence. Daniel chapter 4, verse 27, Daniel's talking to a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. You may have heard of him before. He literally at that moment was the most powerful king uh, in the world, and Nebuchadnezzar or excuse me, Daniel was, was kind of his advisor. Daniel was like a cabinet member. So he had the king's ear. And the king has come to Daniel, and he said, I, ha I had this really bad dream, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. And Daniel interprets the dream, and you read about it in chapter 4, and he basically says to him, you've gotten too arrogant. You've gotten too big for your britches. You seem to think that the universe revolves around you, but remember that God establishes kings and kingdoms, and God removes kings and kingdoms, and you need to humble yourself. You need to repent. If you don't, God's going to take all this away from you for seven years. So you need to, to listen to what I'm saying. You need to turn back to God. And he wraps up that part of the conversation with this statement. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquity by what? By showing mercy to the oppressed. That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Uh, Daniel, I, I kind of love the way Daniel says, he's like, look, it, it might be too late. <laughs> you know, the Lord spoke, and, and, and I'm only his servant, and, and you might be headed to this end anyway. But if there's any chance at all, here's what you need to understand, Nebuchadnezzar. You need to get back to righteousness, to doing what is right before God, not before man, not, not whatever whim that you may have at your disposal. And part of the way your sinfulness is being exposed by God is that you are the oppressor of the people around you. The question for us this morning is, do we want to use the influence that God has given us to persuade others to use their powers for good? Daniel was in a very unique position. He, he, he stood next to the king kind of of the world on a daily basis. So there are other ways that we can use influence. You don't have to be on the, on, in President Obama's cabinet to be a person of influence. You don't have to be a member of the, of the Supreme Court to be a person of influence. You don't have to be a governor of Missouri to be a person of influence. We all have spheres of influence in our lives. There are people around us that we see every day that, that are in need or, or perhaps being oppressed or afflicted and need someone to love them well, to stand up for them, to use 
their influence. So, so who do you know really is the question here. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, a group of people that my wife knows. And I, and I may have used this example with you before. But my wife works at Kirkwood High School and she works with at-risk students. Uh, and every year my wife knows somewhere between four or five or a dozen or so senior girls who go to Kirkwood High School, who live in our community, they're our neighbors, and they live below the poverty line. And they don't have any money for senior pictures. And senior pictures cost a couple hundred dollars these days. But Cindy also knows a photographer or two that are very, very good at their craft and are very, very willing to give their time at cost in order for these girls to be able to have a senior picture, to just have simple dignity that every other senior gets to have at Kirkwood High School, who happens to have been born in a family that has a little bit more money. Cindy also knows a lot of people that can write a check for $100, because that's what it costs. That's the cost to do it. And so she uses her influence. She, she contacts the photographer and says, you know, it's about that time of year again. And sometimes the photographer just calls her and says, hey, don't forget me. I want to make sure, you know, we, we're getting these pictures lined up, right? I, I get to help. I get to be part of this. And then she talks to other folks, and she says, I need $100 from you. I need $100 from you. Why? so that these girls can have a senior picture taken. That's influence, friends. It, it, it's not, you know, it's not earth-shaking. It, it's not going to, you know, change the course of human history. But think about being a senior in high school. And thinking about, think about being at a high school where everybody pretty much, besides a small group of folks, has, has plenty. And you don't. And the people around you are talking about getting their class pictures taken. And you don't get to be in that conversation because you just happen to be born in a family where that isn't going to be possible. Using our influence in even small ways for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know people who are hiring. We know politicians who set policies. We know educators who can make a difference in people's lives. I sent out a note to, uh, to a lot of the attorneys at Green Tree this week, and I asked them a question about social uh, reform. And I, I said, what do you guys think about this? What do, you, what do you folks, you know, what are your opinions? And I got a lot of great thoughts that I think are going to help us uh, be applied as we go down the road at Green Tree. But, but one of the guys said, you know, I use some of my time to go and to, and to represent people in court who can't represent themselves to keep little matters uh, from becoming big matters. So, you know, they got a speeding ticket. They don't know how to take care of that, so they just don't go to court. Well, now there's a bench warrant out for their arrest, and I can go and I can help them avoid that from becoming a big thing. That's the way I can use my influence. Who do you know? How are you using the, the, the sphere of influence God has given you? And I think Green Tree is uniquely qualified in this in our community. I think because of where he's moving us to, to, towards the south part of Kirkwood, but also when I, I look at the people in this congregation and I think of the resources that we have in our congregation, a lot of folks have lived in this area for a long, long time. We have lots of connections with folks. And I know there's a deep serving spirit in this congregation. I'm, I'm kind of preaching to the choir this morning. I know that, that the heart of this church is to care for the needs of our community. So we want to be able to confront when necessary we also want to be able to use our influence for the cause of social reform, but there's a risk involved in that. And that's my third word this morning, risk. And I want to go to the book of Hebrews for just a few moments. And this is a, read the entire chapter of Hebrews 11. It's about faith, and it's really an amazing chapter in Scripture. And, and what I read you this morning was the author's conclusion when he's wrapping up the whole uh, conversation about why we should trust God and walk by faith 
and, and not walk by, uh, walk by, you know, thinking we can earn God's love, but rather simply by trusting in God. And so he gives you this whole list of people, uh, Gideon and Barak and Samson, David and the Samuel, the prophets. And then he goes through this incredible list, right? Uh, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by the resurrection. Uh, you, you look at this list, and it's an amazing list of miracles. I mean, you, think, you know, quenching the fire and putting an entire army to flight. And right at the top of that list, the second thing that's listed there is what? Enforcing justice. Making sure that we do the right thing by everybody. Making sure that the powerful and the rich don't abuse the weak and the powerless. But also notice that enforcing justice was done regardless of personal cost. Read on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, excuse me, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. Excuse me. They put themselves in the victim's shoes. And they said, I'm going to be counted with those who can't help themselves. Excuse me. <coughs> I'm going to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. I want fairness for others just as much as I want it for myself, regardless of the cost. In other words, there's going to be a risk if we take this pathway. Individually, there'll be a risk for you, a risk for me, but collectively, the Green Tree Community Church, there'll be a risk involved. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out. The risk may be that some listen to these uh, sermons and think this isn't the place for them because we've gotten it all wrong. And, uh, and, and we've, we've gotten into an area where we shouldn't get into. Others may judge us and, and think that we're going about it self-righteously. I'm not sure what all the risks are, but they're there for us. The question is, will we follow this pathway of social reform wherever God may lead us, regardless of the cost? I want to also mention, though, that, it, that we're not talking, I think, about a blind uh, risk or, or a thoughtless risk. I'm reading a a book right now on the Wright brothers. And I read a quote by Orville Wright uh, as they were just taking some of their very first steps in aviation. There had been a, a very famous uh, guy who, who was a little bit older than them in Germany who had just been killed uh, trying to get one of his gliders to fly. And his sister was uh, confronting him in a letter and just asking him to be very, very careful and to you know, not endanger himself. And here's what he wrote back to her. He says, the man who wishes to keep at the problem long enough to really learn anything positively must not take dangerous risks. Carelessness and overconfidence are usually more da dangerous than deliberately accepted risks. I love two things about that. First of all, is that Wright understood that when you come up against something as big as trying to fly when nobody's ever done it before, it's going to take you a little while. And there are going to be more challenges than you can ever imagine. And the more I read the book, the more I'm astounded by what they accomplished. If we're going to follow this pathway of social reform, we don't even know what the risks are now. We don't even know what the challenges will be, but there will be many. Are we willing to stay after it? 
Are we willing to be a people of biblical social justice, not just today, but five years from now, ten years from now? Are we willing to grow in that? Are we willing to humble ourselves before God and say, maybe we haven't gotten it quite right up to this point. Lord, would you bring this to bear in our congregation so we stand for your biblical social justice? Are we willing to deliberately accept the appropriate risk? I think one of our risks is that we would be a church that really reflects our entire community, that really looks like this area of St. Louis. However, even if we become an advocate and a friend and a supporter of neighbors who are treated unfairly, uh, that may not be popular. Most social reformers were misunderstood at best. More often than not, they were hated, they were attacked, and they were even killed for their work. I find it fascinating that almost 103 years to the exact day that, that, uh, that Abraham Lincoln lost his life in Ford's Theater, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. Almost 103 years exactly to the day. King's fighting the same battle and giving his life as well. There is a risk, but here's the point. I think what scripture is saying to us in the book of Hebrews in this particular passage, that my comfort cannot be of higher value than my neighbor's well-being. That God calls us to confront. He calls us to influence. He calls us to risk for the cause of biblical social justice. I said I would tell you more about Gary Hagan a little bit later in the service because Gary Hagan's a Christian. He's been a disciple of Jesus for many, many years. In fact, he says uh, when he speaks publicly or he says in the books that he writes, that's why he does what he does. He says, I'm simply following Jesus. Recently, he wrote a book in 2014 called The Locust Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. And this is a man who knows about that which he speaks. He was on the executive committee of the National Initiative for Reconciliation in South Africa in the 90s. He served on the Lawyer Committee for Human Rights that brought sweeping changes against human trafficking and abuse of the poor in the Philippines. He's worked in the U.S. Justice Department and on the U.N. Center for Human Rights. He served as the officer in charge of the genocide investigation in Rwanda. I think he's probably earned the right to talk about biblical social reform. He writes this in his most recent book, Beneath the Surface of the World's Poorest Communities, Common, uh, excuse me, Beneath the Surface of the World's Poorest Communities, Common Violence like Rape, Forced Labor, Illegal Detention, Land Theft, Police Abuse, and Other Brutality have become routine and relentless. And like a horde of locusts devouring everything in their path, the unchecked plague of violence ruins lives, blocks the road out of poverty, and undercuts development. People that have endorsed his work are people like former President Bill Clinton, former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, the uh, Center of Global Development Chair Nancy Birdsall, the President and CEO of CARE Helen Gale, the Google Giving Director Jacqueline Fuller, Redeemer Presbyterian Church Pastor and a man I've quoted throughout the sermon series, Tim Keller, Chief Executive of World Vision Australia, Tim Costello, and the list goes on and on and on. In 2012, he was honored by the U.S. State Department as Trafficking in Persons Hero, the highest honor given by the U.S. government for anti-slavery leadership. In 07, he was awarded the Wilberforce Forum Award, the annual award 
presented by Prison Fellowship, the ministry that Chuck Colson founded, that recognizes the individual who has made a difference in the face of formidable societal problems and injustice. So when Gary Hagan speaks, the Christian community should listen. And one of the things that he said recently is that he senses that there's a new work of God within the Christian community. He sensed for years that the Christian community has lagged behind in this question of biblical social justice, but he sees a new day coming. Biblical social justice is the practical application of God's grace shared freely with everyone through evangelism, through relief, development, and social reform. It includes confrontation. It includes influence. And there is a risk. Are we ready to follow Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that challenges us. Father, I think of the courage uh, that you gave Job. It was your gift to him that he would stand for those who could not stand for themselves. Father, I thank you that you placed Daniel right in front of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, to humble him and to remind him that he was just a man and that you are the Lord. And when you see injustice, you will not stand idly by. Father, I think of the the risk that Jesus took over and over again in confronting sin in his own day and age and then going to the cross. It was not a risk. It It was a surefire death in order that he would pay for our sins, that we could have new life. And now Jesus calls us to follow. Lord, I know that that biblical social justice is not the sum and substance of our faith. It's not everything there is about our faith, but it is certainly a key component. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who would long to understand your heart in this matter and follow you wherever you would lead us. We pray in Jesus' name.